Aloha and welcome to the Uncaring Universe, the podcast hosted by me, Danny Soldfield Waitson, in partnership with Tor UK. This month we're joined by Jen Lyons. Jen is the author of a new five-book epic fantasy series called Chorus of Dragons, the first of which is entitled The Ruin of Kings, and it's just been released, and it's already been optioned. It's epic fantasy that playfully subverts genre tropes and expectations. We have an awesome chat about the changes happening and still needing to happen in fantasy representation and its tropes, about how important your environment is to the creative process, and why protagonist motivation is everything. Hope you enjoyed Jen's insights, and I'm sure you'll be looking forward just as much as I am to having her back after the next book comes out, The Name of All Things, in October 2019. Okay, hey Jen, thank you so much for joining me. How's everything going? Everything is going wonderfully, and thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. So um, some listeners may be a little bit familiar with the book already because it was uh, on the last episode's podcast where we discussed some of the books of 2019 that we were very much looking forward to. And obviously I was cheating a bit with your book because uh, I'd already started reading it. So <laughs> it wasn't so much predicting it to be good, but just already liking it. So um, so hopefully, yeah, some listeners are a bit familiar already, but I always like to hear, you know, um, in the author's own words. I know that you're probably sick of describing it, but, you know, how, how do you describe the book? And basically, you know, you should read this if... All right. Um, well, I think you know it was uh, it was really my chance to tell my own version of the uh, the chosen one story. You know, um, here's somebody who uh, is poor on the streets, gets picked up to be uh, you know singled out as uh, the chosen one of prophecy, uh, except that that turns out to be kind of the worst thing that's ever happened to him. You know, same with there's always this this idea of. Um, you're going to be your your hero is going to be uh, find out that he's a, a long lost prince and you know have a happily ever after and I I always uh, you know wanted to do something with that because the truth of the matter is is that you know um, just because you have money and power uh, doesn't mean that you're nice in fact usually just the opposite um, it's usually how you got money and power so. Why? Why would finding out that you're related to someone like that um, necessarily be a happy ending? Absolutely, yeah, and that's something that I really enjoyed, um, and it's something I think that comes across really early in the book. Is you know this might not be your traditional power fantasy, or at the very least, um, yeah, it sets that expectation that all of this, this chosen one, the prophecy, the the kind of without spoiling anything, that kind of you know interesting lineage. Um, yeah, definitely is going to make things worse before they get better. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. Um, I've I've been told to take it a little easier on my main character. Um, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, f I feel like uh, it's been proven that we like to be a bit sadistic to our protagonists by now. People well, I mean, that, that, is, that is a pretty common uh, piece of advice to writers, certainly, is, you know, uh, the... Uh, the, the more advantages that you've given your main character, the harder you should be on them. That makes sense. Who gives that advice? Is that from agents, from publishers? Oh, gosh. Um, Everyone, yeah. man on the street. You know, that, that's, that's one I've heard for so long that I actually can't tell you where I heard it. 
<laughs> it, it suggests I, I, an interesting inverse where you could have a protagonist with no powers um, or kind of interesting background, but just where everything goes perfectly for them. Doesn't seem like it would make a great novel. No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, I think that's uh, one of those things that we kind of rebel against. You know, if, if somebody is uh, having too easy a time of it in a book, then, well, you may be writing about the wrong character. So you mentioned rebellion, and I always, I always wonder, like, or, or at least I always guess, that a lot of books, a lot of stories are... Uh, a rebellion against something is there you know a trend or uh, in in literature or any other medium or a specific book you know that, that this is your kind of answer to like you said you wanted to take on the chosen one uh, trope oh um i mean i i think that that's uh it's kind of a rebellion against a lot of popular themes in fantasy um Certainly, there's some discussions about issues like, well, uh, issues like consent and agency, mm-hmm. and the idea of the purity of bloodlines that um, are something that will continue to be themes throughout the series, um, just because we see so much of it and it doesn't get questioned ever. You know, of, of course, the, the prince is the one who's going to save everyone. You know, <laughs> of course, um, you know, the, the prophesied one is going to uh, make it all better. So I, I don't think that's a rebellion against a, a single work, um, just sort of more like, uh, you know, some of the common themes that uh, I have grown up reading. Um, you know, I love fantasy. I, I love everything about it, obviously. Um, and a lot of this book is an, an homage to those loves. But um, I think that there's certain things in within the genre that we've kind of blindly accepted for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So those those tropes that we blindly accept, would you say that um, this is something that fantasy, like as a genre, really needs to stand up and and address now? I th- I think it it is starting to change. I do think there's definitely people who have been really. Um, uh, you know, in the the past, I mean, not just the past couple of years, past decade, um, really starting to step forward and say, um, you know, we don't have to kind of blindly accept that uh, a fantasy story has to be set in, say, medieval Europe um, or something that comes off as being medieval Europe. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot of themes that people are starting to push back against, and that's that's really nice. Um you know, last year, I, I had this really interesting opportunity, completely out of the blue, to sit down and have a conversation with um, David Brin, who's kind of one of the greats of science fiction. And, um, you know, and he, when he found out that I wrote fantasy, um, he his advice to me was, uh, just because you're writing fantasy, don't forget to keep interrogating the power systems, Mm. the power structures. And I thought that was a really, really good piece of advice. And I think that's something that, um, that fantasy writers, um, shouldn't shy away from that, that we really can, um, you know, we're used to science fiction addressing a lot of the, um, 
the, the what ifs and questioning some of the things of our society, we, we don't do it as much in fantasy. And I think that's a lost opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a really true point and an interesting insight. I think interrogating the power structure, you know, is obviously something very important for everyone to do in every walk of life. So yeah, definitely yeah. good advice. And it, would you say, I mean, or, or I'll put this another way. So, um, yeah, like you say, sci- sci-fi is often very speculative and, you know, that goes hand in hand with, with futurism. You know, why do you think fantasy for so long has been has been so kind of entrenched in its um, in its tropes? What will be the thing that gets it to, you know, match sci-fi? Well, I think that, um, that a lot of sci-fi, uh, ver- I, sorry, I should say, I think a lot of fantasy um, is uh, nostalgic and comfortable and is a is an entertainment escape and i don't think there's anything wrong with that um certainly uh i've read fantasy for many years for exactly that reason but i do think that we're starting to see um more and more authors particularly as we start to see more people of color um getting into the fantasy space who are not content with that um and that makes me very happy so i yeah, I, I don't think that that is a thing that is going to continue indefinitely. Good. That's reassuring. <laughs> okay, so getting a bit more uh, specific about Ruin of Kings again. Another thing that jumped out at me really early on is just the the kind of sheer amount of multiple perspectives, um, including the the framing perspective, so the one that crops up in the footnotes. And... Personally, that was uh, that was like a real attraction. It, it kind of created a lot of tension between the various viewpoints. But I can imagine for some people, it, it might take a bit of getting their head around. You know, how did you? What what brought you to that conclusion and and that style of having all of those different perspectives and the framing device? Well, um, once I decided what the framing device was going to be, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because. It's, it's practically on page one, um, that, that it was going to be this conversation between, um, you know, the main character who is a prisoner uh, and essentially waiting to be executed. His keeper, his jailer, who is, is a monster, once that framing device kind of fell into place and I realized that I wanted to um, have the entire novel be diegetic, um, meaning that the novel itself exists within the world that the novel is set in, then everything else kind of fell into place, if that makes sense. You know, once once I knew that um, that I was going to have this, uh, this chronicler that was collating these accounts, um, it just made sense to have him want to get his two cents in and start footnoting things. Definitely, yeah, and it's it's a really fun device. It reminded me, like on a very personal level, of um, <laughs> and this is quite a niche memory of the the game manual for Baldur's Gate, which uh, was one of the earliest games I can remember playing, and still one of my favourites. And I remember the manual, you know, has all the the kind of normal manual advice about how to play the game, and then some lore stuff, and then it has all these um, the comments in the marginalia from from two, you know, in fiction D&D characters, Volo and Elminster. And, right. you know, and they end up arguing with each other. <laughs> yes, You know, yes. in the marginalia. So, yeah, it kind of, uh, it brought that flooding back when 
when I had the similar thing. Yeah, people either. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. People either either love the footnotes or they hate them. There, there doesn't. So far, I've not encountered anyone who um, does not have a very strong opinion about them one way or the other. Why? So, why do you think people would hate them? From my understanding, there are people who find them more distracting than, you know, part of the story, or um, there are people who uh, dislike the fact that. Um, that they're not purely informational like footnotes are supposed to be for <laughs> <laughs> scholastic yeah. uh, you know illumination they are not supposed to be for you know Thurvishar's kind of sarcastic commentary that he sometimes puts in <laughs> that's interesting yeah I mean I, can, I guess I can kind of empathize uh, I can see where those people are coming from you, you could read the whole novel right and it would function perfectly well without reading any of the footnotes but you would just miss out on this again this like this other perspective and and this understanding that you know events as they're being narrated by either of the main narrators might be either factually wrong you know in terms of the in the law or yeah. uh, or that obviously they're they're unreliable narrators <laughs> which yeah, i think that... would be a shame to miss out on <laughs> Everyone is an unreliable narrator in my stories. I will admit that. <laughs> so um, it, it's it's good to keep that in mind. You know, uh, there's there's even going to be I think a well not even I think there there will be a later bit where even Thurvishar is occasionally going to get called out as being unreliable in various ways. So perfect. Sounds like it's going to yeah call to mind my my favorite Baldur's Gate manual marginalia argument even more than perfect. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, where they're actually arguing in, in the uh, notes. Um, you know, I will say uh, that I, I lament that um, a lot of the uh, ebook formats out there don't handle footnotes very well. Mm, I can so I think that's, that's another part of the reason that sometimes people um, have issues with them is just because... Uh, it's it's purely a, a, a technical issue, a logistics issue, which mm. is that, you know, it, it, it can be hard to find your place back in the text. Um, so I, I've been really interested to see that for the most part, uh, people who read a physical copy or people who listen to the audiobook um, seem to have a much stronger positive view of the footnotes. That's yeah, that's a good question. How does it work in the audio version? Oh, it's it's fabulous. Um, so we have three different narrators for the three narration voices of the story, mm-hmm. um, and Thurvishar interrupts. Amazing. He just he interrupts and and you know makes his comment, and then it returns back to whoever it was that was talking. It almost sounds like that would be the kind of preferred way of experiencing it. I don't know. It sounds like almost the the most natural kind of realization of of your idea yeah it works really well um they did an amazing job with the uh, audiobook i have to say awesome well then yeah for anybody listening there you have it <laughs> listen <laughs> listen to it or read it with uh with the book in your hands and yeah for once uh, skip the kindle version i feel a little bit sad about that um uh so ebook formatters if any if any of you guys are yeah. listening programmers please improve footnotes because yeah, i am go. not alone there's there's a lot of there's a lot of other authors out there that either are doing or 
are embarking on products that have footnotes. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, at least a lot of people are coming up to me and saying, oh, yeah, my next book is going to be this way. So I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that. Would you like to see more innovation and experimentation with like the the physical format i mean you know physical in in sense of um just uh, the technical format i should say so things like footnotes or you know more unusual structure in fantasy yeah no i i think we have um uh you know amazing opportunities to to play with this is a new technology i mean certainly the uh, the ability to do a more graceful formatting um for things like footnotes and all that we've we've had that ability for a long time mm-hmm. um this is just a thing where we need to we need to catch up so do i understand right that you're a video game producer by day i i am although i am currently uh on a hiatus from that because uh, everything has gotten very busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, fair enough. So I'm uh, I'm taking a little time uh, out to, um, amongst other things, uh, get the rest of the series finished. Cool. That sounds um, that sounds fair enough. Yeah. Uh, how how many books is the series going to be? Five books. Um, nice. I'm currently finishing the third book. Um. So, so yeah, we uh. Second book is going to uh, come out October 29th, I believe is the current date scheduled for it to release. Um, With uh, the plan right now, which I am working very diligently to make sure happens, (laughs) is uh, a book every nine months after that. Cool. So not not ambitious at all for debut, just a five book epic fantasy series. (laughs) (laughs) More than one a year, no problem. Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> so fantasy, obviously, there's a, a huge overlap with the video game world. And um, a couple of my previous guests, uh, Lucy Hansom and Susan Dennard, are both avid RPG and fantasy fans. So I'd be really interested to hear. I mean, they they are obsessed with the games and, and you know, the storytelling. Um, but, but for someone like you who actually works in the industry, I wonder... You know, what did you bring from that career into the actual process of writing a book? Oh, um, well, I, I I actually brought a fair bit. Um, certainly, I think that my uh, tendency to uh, <laughs> run my my book writing process um, very much like it was a um, an agile project <laughs> with. Um, with a you know burn down charts and things like that, uh, which nobody nobody but me knows about or sees. It's it's not a you know um, shared with the public kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> but but that definitely came from the industry and um, it, just certain uh, I think approaches to um, world building and uh, character development are actually kind of uh, from the project management world. I was explaining to somebody else the other day about um you know uh the the five whys technique which i think i'm not i think a lot of writers have actually adopted that one um but it originally comes from uh lean (laughs) and that's you know you just you just keep asking why yeah until you've you've drilled down 
into some of the, the very base motivations or the, the base reasonings behind why, why something's going on. Mm. And um, and that's, a, I find, a very useful technique to figuring out all kinds of problems. Definitely. Um, for anybody listening, by the way, that, that isn't a video game producer, Agile is uh, yeah, a really good kind of industry standard um, yeah, project management methodology. But it usually usually adopted by a team right so i wonder what would you you know what are the biggest takeaways um for you kind of applying that to a you know working by yourself like for anybody else well certainly and and as the name implies uh a certain amount of flexibility is is uh you know expected with the uh with the technique but i think the biggest one is um part of what makes agile successful with teams is the idea that you are accountable to each other Hmm. So um, your, you know, the idea that people are going to work much harder um, and, um, you know, with more passion where they're not necessarily trying to make a boss happy, but trying to help the rest of their team. Um, When you're doing it by yourself, that's just you. (laughs) So... So the idea that, um, that you really do need to be accountable to yourself you know, there, there's nobody stopping you from not writing, getting one's butt in the chair and, and fingers to keyboard. That's that is absolutely not going to be anyone cracking a whip over you. Yeah. So being able to move those little boxes, you know, or whatever method you're using, just check off a mm. thing saying, yeah, I've I've done this and I'm still on track um, is very helpful motivationally to me. Um I'm sure there's plenty of people out there. Everyone has a different process, so uh, and a different ideal process. I think that uh, one of the things that um, that I definitely firmly believe about Agile, and I would love everyone else to take from that, is the idea that um, each team is going to have a different ideal process, hmm. um, and you have to discover what that is. And if something isn't working you change it and you keep experimenting until you find the thing that does work. So I think as writers, we often get very much trapped into this idea of, well, Stephen King said, I have to do it this way. <laughs> yeah. I have to listen to heavy metal <laughs> so, while writing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I have to do it this way. And I'm really struggling with this, but he's my hero or wh- whoever. You know, yeah. whatever author has laid down their particular wisdom, so I must do it that way. Which is and, very tempting, right? It's yeah. very beguiling. Absolutely, absolutely. But but we all have radically different circumstances and, and strengths. And the real trick, I think, is to find out what works for you, you know, and be willing to experiment until you, you chance upon the thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's, you know, that, that could come across as a truism, like it's, a, it's something maybe that a lot of people say, but, but actually when you, when you talk about it in relation to something like Agile, then that's kind of perfect because that's backed up by a framework for actually finding out what works for you. Yes. Right? And like you say, just being, um, just being honest with yourself and holding yourself accountable, I think that that's really great advice. And, you know, you can, hearing you talk about it, I thought, yeah, maybe like the daily stand-up, but just for you, you know, for yourself, right? Would would right. be amazing, and um, 
yeah, just just every day sitting down and going, right, what did I do yesterday? What am I going to do next? And, you know, how, how did what's, it go? Right. And, what's blocking me? Yeah. What's blocking um, me? <laughs> that actually sounds really, really sensible. Well, I mean, um, you know, from a certain perspective, uh, NaNoWriMo is a one month long agile project. Yeah, true. <laughs> you know, including the burn down chart. So there you go. Yeah. Video game project <laughs> management is the answer to everything. <laughs> so I know that you have been tremendously busy and uh, games take a lot of time to play. <laughs> Nearly as much time it seems to play these days as, as they do to make. But have you played anything really good recently, story-wise? Or in fact, you know, oh. an- anything. I'll, I'll widen it open. It doesn't have to be games. I, but. I will be so pleased when I can get back to really being having the time to play video games again. <laughs> um, it's sadly not something. I think the last video game that I really sat down and sank my teeth into was... Um, not the last Assassin's Creed, but actually the one before that. Um, I've lost track of them all. Uh, Origins? That's, yes, Origins yeah. is the one, um, which I adored. And I would like to play the newest, the, uh, the the one set in Greece. I would love to play that one. But um, as, as yet, again, uh, I just have other things that are taking up my time. Yeah, another um, four books. <laughs> three books, so three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two and a half two and, two and, and a half sorry. books um yeah no a- absolutely um uh, and uh you know i'm i'm very much looking forward to uh the next elder scrolls game um pretty much every time something comes up like this i just wistfully look at it and say well i'll probably buy it and then when i have time i'll play <laughs> it but not not yet what would you like to see change in video game storytelling? Oh, in video game storytelling. Because I think that, you know, coming back to what you were saying about uh, fantasy tropes in literature needing, <laughs> you know, some modernization or needing to start kind of interrogating themselves, I think uh, in games it's even more overdue. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I would definitely like to see um, uh, a step back from a lot of pretty done tropes at this point. You know, uh, the revenge quest based around the murdered... You know, I mean, in in video games, as in a lot of stories, this is also true for um, all kinds of media, you know, the idea that if you're a man, you're going to be motivated to move forward by um, a girlfriend or wife's death Mm. and if you are a woman you're going to be motivated um by either uh a child being in jeopardy or by your previous rape you know like those are the motivations for so so much media that we that we consume i would love to see something else i think that really sums it up nicely i think yeah motivation is at the heart of, uh, of all of it and some really interesting variety in motivation or some interesting twists, you know, on those tropes. Mm-hmm. That could solve a lot of problems. I mean, I know it, it sounds silly in a way, but I think that's one of the things that makes John Wick so endearing. Yes. You know? 
Yes. <laughs> just because it's just for once. Like it is a slightly unhinged motivation, but um, but it's just something different. Right. And it's it's not he's not blaming them for his wife's death. No. You know, that that's that's not something that they had anything to do with. No. You know, and um yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that was one of the things that you went, Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> um But yeah, yeah. Definitely motivation. Um, <laughs> you know, I I uh I still see it. I see it all the time um, for, you know, all kinds of stories. Um, and just in general, I think that, you know, I, we everybody knows that there's an issue with who the protagonists are in video games. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> that we, everybody knows this. Um, and it just, it just keeps being done the same way over and over again so i'm an optimist so i keep hoping that it won't <laughs> always be that way i think it's getting better slowly i do too i do too um i think it's been very painful you know certainly there's um some very outspoken loud voices i think that at the end of the day uh we all want a good story that i think is going to win out yeah i agree <laughs> I agree. I think um, trends and, and tropes are powerful things, but as long as people like like you and uh, and like some other you know great authors that have been on this podcast keep like you say interrogating those power structures and kind of playing with the motivation, uh, it has that ripple effect. And then you know then you end up after a while with someone like Ubisoft, you know making um, making the brave relatively speaking choices they did with the newest assassin's creed mm -hmm. uh, allowing you to play you know essentially choose your sexuality which are, which is huge for them yes you know and and yes. that's such a uh, a global game you know sells so many copies that you, you start to get those ripple effects and then and then hopefully that will inspire you know more indies and whatever less well-known storytellers to be even more adventurous so yeah well, I definitely think, you know, the goal is something like that. At least I think the goal is something like that is for it to get to the point where it's just not remarkable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not <laughs> not a big deal, you know. Yeah. It, it really shouldn't be a big deal. So uh, hopefully we will we will get to that point. Definitely. I think, yeah, I think optimism is, is uh, justified. <laughs> okay, so pretty much coming up to the end of our allotted time but one thing i think is always uh, fascinating to, to hear and also tremendously useful for anyone listening uh, always probably more useful than hearing what went well is what your biggest challenges have been or your biggest one challenge in writing in general even if it's you know getting out of bed in the morning <laughs> oh. <laughs> well i mean you know honestly um i don't think it's a coincidence that I did not um, finish this book. The book was in process for a really long time, but I didn't finish it until I moved from Los Angeles to Atlanta. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, I think that, uh, that it was sufficiently difficult and stressful and that 
quite frankly, you spend so much time in traffic <laughs> in Los Angeles, just getting from, you know, uh, home to work and back again, that um, that it left no time for anything else. Mm. Uh, and when I started working out in Atlanta, um, you know, I was actually able to make the time in the evenings to write. So uh, I think that was that was kind of um, all the difference, honestly, was was not staying in Los Angeles, which, you know, I, I part of me hates saying that because I still love Los Angeles. Um, I always will. Um, but it is a it's just like uh, a lot of other major cities. It can be a very difficult place to live. Yeah. Well, I think um, there's, there's a difference, isn't there, between loving a place and being in the place that's best for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So, environment then definitely key. Well, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. I, I know nothing about Atlanta, but um, I'm glad it's, uh, yeah, suiting you better. <laughs> it's, it's a shockingly nerdy place, actually. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, um, there are more, there are more comic book and gaming stores within uh, five miles of me now than probably in all of Southern California. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, This is really, uh, the geek culture out here is, uh, it was shocking to me when I first moved out here because I had not expected that at all. Um, How how long have you lived in LA for? I am going on seven years here. I mean, sorry, you said LA, not, not Atlanta. Um, I've lived. I lived in Atlanta, in Los Angeles, for uh, let's see, twenty years. Okay, and, yeah. and seven now in Atlanta. Seven in Atlanta, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I can. I can imagine. I've never been to LA, but um, from what I've seen, yeah, definitely looks very full of cars and very showbiz. And yeah, I can't imagine there being that many geeks and like you say <laughs> comic book shops knocking around yeah no i mean anything that you want is in la somewhere right you know any anything la has it and they yeah. have a fantastic example of whatever it is you're looking for um so you know from that perspective uh living in la was amazing because there, you know you were just constantly surrounded by the most incredible exemplars of whatever mm-hmm. um but but it is a very uh very busy very uh draining city to live in yeah, so. i can imagine i feel the same i moved from london about six months ago to cambridge and for yeah the same kind of reasons really you know london has so much of everything you could want that you just constantly have choice paralysis Oh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and it's so draining. Yeah, you can go to any of these things at a drop of a hat, but, but just getting there and navigating the underground and whatnot. <laughs> and now I don't have really, you know, a hundredth of the choice or or the size, but I can just walk around and, uh, you know, and, and then you realize you don't really need it. <laughs> yeah. You don't uh, need to be it, able to choose the biggest and, and the best every time. Yeah, it's it's a it's really interesting to move. I mean, uh, Atlanta is still a large city, um, but is it Georgia? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, you know, so it's it's 
still a it's still a very large city, but it's a it's just got a very different flavor to it. And um, you know, large swaths of Los Angeles are effectively paved over. Um, you know, with if there's greenery, it's very planned. You know potted mm. scheduled greenery and and atlanta is um trees and and greenery everywhere so perfect um yeah it turns out i actually needed that more than i had realized as well um just that being uh being out near um wild things good food for the soul mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah amazing well yeah that's that's pretty much our time so uh it just just remains for us to do a, a quick recap obviously all this information will be in the description of the podcast but um rune of kings is out when uh rune of kings came out february 5th oh, it's out already fantastic yes yes yeah, so i got it out. a bit earlier it always screws with my perception of time so you can go and get rune of kings now and you should do in audiobook or actual book maybe not kindle this time and then book two uh yes book two uh which is the name of all things uh drops on october 29th amazing and people can find you on twitter at uh jen lyons author and um i'm on right j-e-double-n yep and uh and I'm on Instagram as Jen Lions and Tigers. <laughs> so, <laughs> Catchy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens with everything. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, yeah, this this has been great, Jen. Thank you so much again for taking the time. And uh, yeah, thank you everybody for listening. As ever, get in touch over Twitter. Uh, if you can leave a comment or a review on soundcloud or itunes it all helps and uh, retweet and whatnot yeah, let's get all this writing wisdom out there to the people that need it and uh yeah thank you everybody once again bye